We'll plot a graph, you know, like a link graph that shows your payment to the address provided by ransomware criminals. And then that payment will split among the members of the crew. And then those payments will end up going eventually to a place where it'll be cashed out for something that they can use on their local economy. And those are all things that we're looking for and that most investigators are also looking for. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about tracking down cryptocurrency after it's been involved in a crime. On May 8th, 2021, the company that operates the largest refined products pipeline in the United States, Colonial Pipeline, paid nearly $4.4 million to rescue itself from a devastating ransomware attack that it had just suffered days earlier. The attack had shut down the pipeline for five days, leading to a gas shortage along the east coast of the United States. One month later, the Department of Justice announced that it had remarkably clawed back nearly $2.3 million of the ransom that was paid to Colonial Pipeline's attackers. This was a breakthrough in cryptocurrency retrieval. Cryptocurrency itself is vital to modern cybercrime. Anytime you hear a story about a ransomware attack, like you just did, and the attackers are demanding a million dollars or several hundreds of thousands of dollars, they're not looking for a suitcase full of cash to be handed over at an abandoned shipping yard in the middle of the night. They're looking for cryptocurrency, and almost always that cryptocurrency is Bitcoin. Back in 2019, the ransomware negotiation and recovery company Coveware revealed that 98% of ransomware payments were made using Bitcoin. Why is that? Well, it's partly because the promise of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin make it attractive to criminals. Now, if you mention this to any Bitcoin evangelist, they will scoff and tut-tut and say, well, actually, and then bring up many use cases for cryptocurrency that are not fully realized today, and many principles of decentralized financing that sound admirable, and many reasons why, comparatively, cash can also be used for crime. But that doesn't mean that we should get rid of cash, does it? And to that argument's credit, no, of course not. But for years, Bitcoin has received an alluring reputation because of its anonymity when compared to modern banking, and because there is a very infrastructure that is being built up around it to further increase that anonymity. Now, the type of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency purchases that most curious buyers do, that type of activity has become hardly anonymous if law enforcement really wants to look into it. So if I want to buy Bitcoin, right, the most likely path for me is to open an account with a cryptocurrency exchange. Exchanges are platforms such as Coinbase or Kraken or Binance. And one of their big appeals is that they simplify a lot of the work around buying and receiving cryptocurrency. So. Let's say I open an account and I want to not only 
purchase Bitcoin, but I also want to set up a way for people to pay me in Bitcoin. Uh, I can't receive Bitcoin as an attachment in an email, right? Or, or as a package sent to my physical address. But I can receive Bitcoin with a Bitcoin address. Legibly, a Bitcoin address isn't that different from a physical address. It's a string of numbers and letters. But a Bitcoin address is more like, for example, 14QVILJFDGAP4EEHNDYJBEGQSYNCPWK3GD. And what those numbers and letters mean is actually similar in a sense to a physical address. It's that it's where something can get sent. And that's where we will stop that metaphor because it's getting a bit too stretched. Now, all of that type of activity that I just explained, of just plain old me buying and receiving Bitcoin, uh, particularly through a major cryptocurrency exchange, that has increasingly required the verification of people's identities. In fact, one of the conveniences of some exchanges is that they let you link your regular old banking account to make cryptocurrency purchases. And though my Bitcoin address doesn't have my name attached to it, my exchange account does have my name attached. And even if I've used a fake name, if I've connected that fake name to my real bank, then that's not anonymous. But today's episode isn't about tracking that type of activity. It's instead about tracking the use of cryptocurrency in professional crime, which is far, far more difficult. Today, to help us understand the world of cryptocurrency forensics, what investigators are looking for in reams of data, how they find it, and why it's so hard to find it, we're speaking with Brian Carter, Senior Cybercrimes Specialist with Chainalysis. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. How's it going? It is going great. Thank you for asking. You know, not a lot of people ask that. <laughs> Just to derail it really quick, uh, but it's going well. We are very excited to have you on the show. And I think there is a ton to discuss here. And so let's jump right into it. I mentioned a little bit at the top of the episode already, right, about how cryptocurrency plays a, a vital role in cybercrime. I wanted to have our audience understand a little bit more. Let, let's set the scene a little bit. What role does cryptocurrency play in modern cybercrime, uh, particularly ransomware? As you mentioned in the intro, Coveware says that Bitcoin is 98% of it. The other 2% are a different cryptocurrency asset. And so really, it's just the enabling technology that sort of facilitates the transfer of you know, the payment from a victim to the, the criminals who are demanding it, right? But it's not the only method. I feel like what I'm hearing in the question is that maybe this problem wouldn't exist if it weren't for cryptocurrency. And the truth is that cyber crimes, they existed long before the availability of cryptocurrency. Yeah. I'm so glad you kind of already pivot into that because something I was curious about here is, you know, we hear about this dramatic entanglement between cryptocurrency and cybercrime. And cryptocurrency is not older than I am. And that makes me immediately think of like, okay, well, like, did cybercrime simply happen less like before the widespread use of cryptocurrency or or did it just happen differently? Yeah, it was a little bit different for sure. Uh, one of the things that I always bring up, I spend almost all of my time 
looking at ransomware and all the crimes that sort of support it in the, the sort of ecosystem of criminal underground services. And prior to the sort of common knowledge of ransomware today, what we think of ransomware like Colonial Pipeline that you mentioned, there was a, a several years where we dealt with a problem called fake antivirus. Uh, I know many of your listeners are, are well aware of this problem. But instead of cryptocurrency, they accepted payments for this maliciously installed nuisanceware that would nag the user until they made this payment that seemingly involved the removal of a fake virus on the computer, right? The payments would be made in credit card for about $50 each. And the criminals behind this would load balance the payments across multiple merchant accounts and multiple payment processors in order to stay below the threshold of being suspected of fraud or, or getting your accounts shut down. And uh, they did this very well. And you might think, well, gosh, Brian, you're comparing these multi-million dollar ransom payments to a $50 fake antivirus payment. But this was done in such a large scale that it still brought many millions to the criminals behind it. And then even before that, and up till today, stolen credit cards and the trade of stolen credit card data itself has been kind of a crime that's existed long before the availability of, of cryptocurrency. Yeah, It reminds me of that. There's like this story of, if not the first, uh, one of the first ransomware viruses that was spread around um, long ago, decades ago, where it was actually sent in floppy disks that were sent as like a, a an individual claimed that they were a scientist who had new research on AIDS, which at the time was still not like fully understood. And he just sent it to other institutions that were working on AIDS research and said, hey, I've like packaged this. I think it'll help a lot of you. And then when people like inserted that floppy disk after a certain number of reboots, their computers locked up. And then you could send money, I believe, to a P.O. box, which is wild <laughs> comparatively, you know? I wanted to also understand then like, because like you said, there's been cybercrime before, there's been, you know, uh, the, the pilfering of credit card data for sure and also using it. Why then have cyber criminals flocked to cryptocurrency? Like what does cryptocurrency offer that makes their work, I guess, easier? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what brings criminals to cryptocurrency are a lot of the same reasons that bring anybody else who's not a criminal to cryptocurrency. For my part in this, it's just sort of nerdy and I like it because it's technology and uh, something new and different to try. But it's also today, I think especially, it's really easy to get it's easy to use. You can transfer from person to person without some institutional fees being applied. And there's also, to your earlier point, a kind of perceived anonymity that goes along with the use of cryptocurrency that may or may not really exist in any meaningful way. And yeah, I mean, I, we can only guess about what's on a criminal's mind, except that it's convenient and it works. That's maybe the most important thing is that it's working for them today. And it's also really hard to take away from them. On that exact note, right, that it works, I did kind of want to go down just this like really brief thought experiment, which we kind of hinted at, which is like, what would happen to cyber crime, like as an institution, if cryptocurrency overall just like vanished overnight, which is not plausible, but it's like, what would happen? Yeah. I think it would be fun to watch 
all the posts on crime forums and in Russian about what happened to all their assets and how, you know, how, how are they going to make their Lambo payment? Right. <laughs> I think they're creative, intelligent people. They just don't have any morals or, or ethical boundaries. Right. They're going to figure something out. If cryptocurrency isn't available to them, then they'll sort something else out. And, you know, we mentioned Coveware's stat about Bitcoin, 98% of the, the ransom. The other asset is probably Monero, 2% there. And some of your listeners might not know that Monero is a privacy coin and the benefits of it are kind of that it's somewhat opaque to surveillance and that it's really hard to do tracing in Monero the same way we would for Bitcoin. And yet there hasn't been a widespread adoption of Monero or requests for Monero among ransomware groups because many victims aren't able to source it in the same volume that they can Bitcoin. The exchange that I use that's based here in the US today won't sell Monero to me and they won't trade Monero for other cryptocurrencies that they do sell. And so I think criminals adapt to that and they know that, oh, well, if I can't get Monero, then I have to settle for a Bitcoin, which they know is maybe less anonymous than Monero. And that's one maybe simple example of where you know they're going to figure out a way to get the money and if we don't have the options that are available today then there'll be something available to them right i really enjoy how that highlights something you said earlier that they use it because it works like they use cryptocurrency because it works because here with monero we have this clear example like you said it's a privacy coin that seems designed to have better safeguards against surveillance and one would think that it would behoove cyber criminals to use that coin. But there's problems, like you said, with sourcing it from like victims having trouble getting it. Uh, U.S. exchanges uh, not letting you buy it, depending on the exchange. And it isn't necessarily, oh, cyber criminals like this because of its privacy you know, or, or because of its uh, you know, anti-surveillance capabilities. They like it because it works and it probably facilitates crime more quickly than methods did previously. I wanted to then also kind of steer into, like we were talking about, this whole reputation that cryptocurrency has of being anonymous or, or, or untraceable. And and we mentioned, you know, at the top there, the FBI did retrieve funds from the colonial pipeline attack. Also in 2017, uh, a fellow who ran the dark web marketplace called Alpha Bay, uh, he was identified and arrested largely through investigative work and also through tracking payments on the so-called ledger of all cryptocurrency transactions. There are many ledgers, sorry. Um, but I wanted to then ask and kind of follow up here, right? This reputation that cryptocurrency has had for being anonymous or, or untraceable, it's getting a bit shaky with situations like we just cited. And so was cryptocurrency always traceable and, and it had an unearned reputation? Or is it that we've like developed technology now that can make that tracing possible? I'd say it's a little of both, to be honest. Bitcoin especially, we need to separate Bitcoin from cryptocurrency in general in this context and say that Bitcoin was sort of traceable by design. And it's this immutable public ledger that everybody can look into and verify their transactions, verify the transactions of anyone else for that matter. And so it's always been traceable. But more recently, the tools for clustering together addresses that resemble a wallet that's used by one particular entity 
have improved substantially. And that's what makes tracing possible, I think, are these tools. Many of your listeners might use tools like Maltigo that can plot a Bitcoin address and a transaction hash and the receiving Bitcoin address on a graph. Uh, we would call that address level tracing here. And I would say that that type of tracing isn't especially useful for investigators who are trying to understand you know, where cryptocurrency went and who who received it. Like, did it go to an exchange or some kind of service or a sanctioned entity that's been designated by a, an authority like OFAC? It also kind of invites the next question immediately, which is like, what does this software do? Like, what is cryptocurrency forensics? And, and before we drill too much into that, I think a good way to help our audience understand it is like, let's say I get ransomware. Like let's say I'm a company and the ransomware demand is a million dollars in Bitcoin. And I do that. I manage to scramble up together a million dollars in Bitcoin and I pay it to my attackers. What is actually happening there? Like we talk a lot about Bitcoin getting sent to getting sent to addresses and is it being stored on an exchange? What is like the most likely thing that happens when I pay, I a company pay a ransom to my attackers, the flow of money? Yeah, I wish we had, we could put some visuals up here. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so you're going to make this payment directly to one address that is given to you by the criminals. And in, in general, this address doesn't get reused. And so after the funds are received to that address, they will split to probably members of that criminal enterprise that participated in it. And we can infer some things by the size of the split in some cases. Uh, we know from reading crime forums and leaked chats and other things that there's often a case where the developer of ransomware will receive 10 or 20% of a ransom payment and the people who did the hacking and spreading the ransomware in a, a large victim enterprise would receive the 80% portion of that. So we'll see those splits. Then it's all bets are off on what happens after that. There's quite a range of discipline that happens among criminals who are involved in ransomware and how they will maybe protect themselves or their transactions from surveillance. Some will attempt to use things like mixers or chain hopping or something like that in the hopes that it would prevent us from following the funds to an exchange where they might try to receive a local currency or another digital currency like Kivi or web money. And others will go to great lengths and still yet another group will just send it straight to an exchange. Like they receive this money, their Lambo payment is due the next day. And so that, that money just goes instantly to an exchange. And it's, it's hilarious to us when that happens. That would be the like non-digital equivalent of like robbing a bank and then just putting it in your bank account. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and so uh, for an investigator, so as a ransomware victim in the US, you deal with FBI or somebody like that, they would have the authority to send a legal request to the exchange that received those funds and then decide whether or not there's an opportunity to provide restitution or identify the criminals who are the account holders of that exchange. There's all sorts of different opportunities. And for us as, in, as researchers at Chainalysis, we also get to work backwards in that flow of funds and discover more of the cryptocurrency footprint of that 
ransomware group, right? In a lot of cases, we use the term Bitcoin wallet when, when what we really mean is just address. A wallet is composed of many addresses. It could be thousands or, or even millions of addresses. And so software like Chainalysis Reactor will cluster all of those addresses together and does one single entity, and then we put a name on it, like Conti Ransomware, for example. I'm so glad you mentioned that there can be millions of addresses, because when you were mentioning that, you know, folks who make ransomware and they license it out, they get a payment, like you said, of 10, 15, 20% for successful attacks. And when you hear that, like, okay, they're getting a payment, it's getting sent to an address, I think instinctively, some folks might think like, well, then wouldn't that be easy to see? Wouldn't it be easy to see that after a major attack that involves this type of ransomware, there's this one address out there that just keeps getting a standard kind of almost predictable amount of money based on the ransom that was paid and being like, that's it, that's them right there. But it sounds like obviously ransomware developers in that case are not using the same address for their entire lives. Am I getting that correct? Yeah, for the most part, there are cases where these addresses get reused and those are opportunities for us, but we don't, we're not limited by that one sort of pattern of behavior. There's lots of different things that we're looking for there that I think they're really fun for us to, to work through and uh, spending a lot of time trying to learn everything we can about not only the one address, but every other address in that cluster who the counterparties are among every address there. Are there common counterparties among these different addresses that we could maybe identify and further understand uh, the scope or size of this criminal enterprise? All of this talk about, you know, the investigation itself, then I think we can move on easily into this big question, right? Which broadly is like, what is cryptocurrency forensics? And, And what I'm curious about here is, how is this done? Because we've referred to a lot of things that are just kind of, I think for some folks, it feels like they're just in the ether, you know, like these addresses. And it's like, well, then how do you find those addresses? And like, how do you track payments on it? And do you try and investigate after an attack has happened? Or have you already collected like reams of data about behavior of these addresses? And these are all like a ton of questions. And so again, I wanted to make it simpler here and say, how is this work done? There's a lot of different activity that goes into tracing cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency forensics. And one of the things that my team does is the research that leads to attributions in the data that we provide to customers. So when you're tracing cryptocurrency in our tools, you'll see the name Conti Ransomware on there or Big Exchange XYZ instead of BC1Q12345. And it's hard to measure the value of that to an investigator who wants to trace the victim's funds to, you know, whether they've been stolen or been paid as part of a ransom to a place where they can retrieve them and provide restitution or send a legal process to potentially unmask the criminals behind the, the act. So providing the attribution for all of the data in advance of an investigation is what's really important. So the the tracing part of it, I mentioned, will plot a graph, you know, like a link graph that shows your payment to 
the address provided by ransomware criminals, and then that payment will split among the members of the crew, and then those payments will end up going eventually to a place where it'll be cashed out for something that they can use on their local economy. And those are all things that we're looking for and that most investigators are also looking for. Another use case that investigators are very interested in is understanding the hierarchy of a criminal organization based on financial flows. So at the top of the Conti criminal enterprise is a mega boss that's been a longstanding member for many years. And that person receives a cut of everything that came from Conti ransomware and Ryuk before that. And today still very much involved in, in cyber crimes. And, and we can look at the cryptocurrency flows to and from that cluster of addresses and infer a lot about who's important in that organization and and how payroll works and and other kinds of uh, uh, interesting things like that that help us understand the longevity of different members and and their potential role based on descriptions that we've seen in leaked chats and, and crime forum posts. I really enjoy this picture that tracking cryptocurrency, it's also tracking finances. And tracking finances, like you said, helps give a very firm view into organization, like organization of a criminal enterprise. Like you can see who gets paid the most. You can see who gets paid after that. Like this is financial investigation. And that's really interesting, like just to learn that. I wanted to focus on something here that you said, we, you know, again, we've, we're referring to like this mega boss of Conti ransomware. And we know that they get paid like a lion's share and we can see the payments and I think it's hard for some folks to understand that and say like, and then understand why we can't catch them. And so I'm curious, like, does an address do anything more than information? Like, is there any way to determine like physical location? Is there any way to determine anything more than payments going in and out from just an address? Yeah, great question. This one ends in Russia. And unfortunately, in a lot of these cases where the finances sort of go to a country that's hostile to us or that would not respond to any sort of MLAT type of legal assistance request. I wouldn't say it's always hopeless, like there there has been cooperation in the past, but in this particular case, I don't expect that there's going to be a positive outcome unless Megaboss takes a vacation in Spain or something, you know, like like that's happened in the past. So with these tools that Chainalysis makes and, and other companies make, what else is also being tracked here? Obviously, there's the flow of finances from address to address and then clustering those addresses. Uh, I'm just trying to get as complete a picture as I can for what are the clues that help investigators? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I'll say the vast majority of the data that we provide for attribution relies on ground truth. So we have some sort of evidence that supports the attribution assessment that we've made. And in some cases, we can also develop a sort of pattern recognition from hundreds or thousands of the attributions that we've made in the past and say that we can assess with a high enough probability that this is the thing that we think it is, something more like a category than a specific entity. You can imagine the frequency of transactions and the time of day of transactions can help you learn where they might be in the world or whether or not it's a service that benefits from automation or a human being who is using a manual sort of 
point and click wallet to facilitate transfers? How many could a human being facilitate in a single day versus a server that is uh, using automation? You know, this, this kind of thing. There's also patterns that we recognize in the payments themselves, like when ransomware payments are made, there are certain things that we can recognize to say that uh, this is really specific to this one type of ransomware. I wanted to go back to, like you said, something with the Megaboss. We're just going to keep going back to the Megaboss. Um, the address in that case, you know, ends up in Russia. And this helps segue into another question, which is like, what happens when it doesn't end up in Russia? Like what happens if it ends up in the United States? And the bigger question there is also like, are there more investigative tools that are involved? Is it just data analysis? And you find out like, okay, well, this is in the US. Or is it also like law enforcement saying like, okay, we have this information. And so now we're going to like issue a subpoena. How does it work? <laughs> yeah, that that's usually it right there. Our data doesn't have your name in it. And so when an investigator is tracing uh, cryptocurrency in response to a crime, they're going to reach an exchange. If that exchange is based here in the U.S. or is friendly to U.S. law enforcement, then a legal process will hopefully unmask the account holder the same way it would happen if you were a victim of fraud that involved a bank transfer. And uh, the result of that subpoena will guide the law enforcement on how to proceed. You know, is this, if this is a U.S. person, then what are we going to do next? Indict the person or, you know, something like that, right? Something I think is really interesting about everything you've mentioned is it feels so matter of fact. It feels like, yeah, this is at our fingertips and we know the flow of money. We know who is receiving the line share of that money. We know where it goes. We know if it goes to an exchange. And that all sounds so like, again, simple. And that contradicts, I think, what cryptocurrency forensics has been for many years, which is that, you know, tracking cryptocurrency itself is difficult. And so that invites the question is like, what makes it difficult and what has changed? Part of what makes it difficult is that it's really impractical to do on an address to address level. So I mentioned the Maltigo example earlier. That's not a winning strategy for tracing cryptocurrency. Um, not that there's anything wrong with Maltigo, just that the address to address examples that you can work out for free using blockchain.info, that's not how you're going to trace the transfer of value from one entity to another. Uh, you really need something that will cluster the addresses together to do that. And then on the attribution side, that's what allows an investigator to see that the victim's funds went to big exchange XYZ and not to BC1Q1234, you know, like that wouldn't be super helpful to an investigator to know that it just went to this cluster and we don't really know what to do at that point, right? So the attribution part of it, putting a name on that cluster is what's I don't know. Also, I'm maybe biased because this is my role in the company is is putting these names on the clusters, but I think it's very important. It sounds like before attribution and before being able to look at all of this data, even investigators who were interested in this, investigators who wanted to take down these cyber criminals, like you could show them a path of money, but they could be like, that could be any cyber criminal's money or any like regular person's flow of money and now the value seems to be saying like this flow of money fits a pattern of behavior that we know 
is associated with other cybercrimes. Am I getting that kind of right? Yeah, definitely. So part of that is really we can look at all of the exposure to different categories of cryptocurrency clusters. So within our tools, clicking on any cluster will show you the the exposure to other category types. And so we can instantly look at a graph that says, yeah, this has received a lot from ransomware, from crime markets and forums, from you know different kinds of criminal-related illicit enterprises versus something like what my cryptocurrency cluster might look like receives from exchanges, sends to merchant services, something that looks really, you know, kind of benign, right? It's easy to assess that, oh, this is filthy or this is clean. It's something that takes a little bit of effort to decide what kind of filthy it is or where the dirt came from, right? I wanted to go back to something you mentioned, that other cryptocurrency, Monero, that you said is a privacy coin. It's better at obscuring its own tracks. What does that mean? How is it, quote unquote, like better at fighting surveillance? Yeah. So in Monero transactions, it's really not possible to say, do the things that are possible with Bitcoin, like view the balance on another address or see who somebody who owns an address transacted with without something called a view key uh, that would only be available to participants in the transaction. And that makes it really difficult or more complicated to conduct surveillance on Monero. There's also, I would say, regularly improving interest in protecting Monero from surveillance. And so it seems like an obvious choice to criminals. And I I hear researchers and, and read researchers saying, oh, criminals are moving to Monero. Bitcoin's a thing of the past. Everybody's using Monero now. And that that really hasn't happened in any meaningful way. We do know of one crime market that only accepts Monero. There's often a willingness to accept Monero in addition to other cryptocurrencies, but there's really only one market that I'm aware of that only accepts Monero. And criminals who are unwilling to accept other cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, which are easy to get today anywhere in the world, I think they're potentially cutting themselves off a of revenue and that that might be how the criminals themselves see the problem is that if I'm only willing to accept a privacy coin like Monero, then victims won't be able to pay multi-million dollar ransoms and customers of a, a fraud market or a crime market, they won't be able to buy in and receive goods and, and things like that. So. There's definitely an incentive to use Monero, but it seems to work better kind of person to person than it does on a larger scale for things like paying ransoms where there isn't really enough liquidity to support, you know, multi-million dollar ransoms in cases where a victim in the US or Europe is going to choose an exchange that might not even sell them uh, Monero to begin with. We were talking a little bit earlier about what makes this so hard? And I think something that I completely forgot about is that it's not just a question of like data analysis, but it's also that cyber criminals themselves make it hard. And you mentioned earlier the use of things like mixers or tumblers. What are those? What are they doing to obscure criminals' tracks? Yeah, a mixer is really a service that you send 
two parts to it. You you want to send the mixer a final kind of destination address, and then you're going to send cryptocurrency to an address that's owned by the mixer. And then after some period of time, the receiving address that you submitted will receive the funds that have been filtered through a complicated or sometimes laughably simple process of transferring to different wallets in different amounts and trying to mask the origin of the funds so that the recipient isn't tied to, say, stolen funds or a ransom payment, for example, and that they wouldn't be barred from depositing them at a large exchange that might recognize them as stolen funds. Mixers range in quality and capabilities, and I don't think most criminals have a very good handle on which ones are good and which ones aren't. Some mixers, I know from working at Chainalysis, they seem to be designed really to put a number of hops between, say, a compliant exchange and a gambling site or a site that you might buy weed from, and so that your your exchange account won't be flagged for terms of service violation or something like that. And they're really not designed to evade surveillance, but the people who are using these services don't necessarily know that. Yeah, and then there's also, I think, there are a lot of mixers that might be effective, but they're not used effectively, you know, like they, uh, the people using the services kind of hobble themselves and, and how they choose to use the service, and they don't use it consistently. And that confounds their effectiveness too. Yeah, trying to think of other examples here where we've heard criminals have had internal discussions among their, their groups that say, oh, we're going to do, we're all going to use this mixer starting today. And then none of them ever use that mixer after that. We kept tracing everything the way we normally did. And none of them had ever used that mixer after that. So it's, it's one of these sort of almost cartoonish situations where if you're on the outside of chain analysis, looking at all these different criminal groups and and maybe studying the malware alone you you learn about these things like oh they said they're going to use these mixers so it you know everything's going to be busted or whatever and and the the reality is like some of these people are really lazy you know like they just they're either lazy or they're just uh you know potentially they're in a country where they just don't fear being arrested for their crimes you know and so i think there's just like a lack of willpower to to do anything really to prevent a surveillance. I can't get over the fact that like their behavior is so similar to like a lot of our behavior, but for like different circumstances. And, and I'm immediately thinking of like, I used to work somewhere where we had a lot of problems with like project management. Like we had too many things going on at the same time and team members were doing things that uh, there just need to be a better view into like the team's work. And so we all like one day said like, we're going to use this tool. Like we're going to use this like web-based tool and we're going to like throw all of our work up onto it. And like, we're going to ladder into each other's projects and everything. And we never yeah. used it. <laughs> like it was just, and it was a pure fact of we felt we were too busy to learn an entirely new tool. And that was just, you know, like not crime <laughs> and the same problems afflict crime, which is just insane. Like it's insane to hear that people are still people at the end of the day and they're not going to do something if they're lazy. We've talked a lot about chain analysis and a lot about cybersecurity forensics, this, this type of software. Who is this software for? Because I can 
obviously see that this like the the results of this help law enforcement but are there other interested parties in utilizing both the software or like the information that is gleaned from it you mentioned the the biggest group of users that benefit from the work that that my team does is is really law enforcement and and related sort of investigators that support them but there's also cryptocurrency businesses and financial institutions that use our tools to measure risk um, and so think of all the transactions that come in and out of an exchange being sort of assessed for whether or not they carry a sanctions risk. That's really important to an exchange that wants to comply with the law, right? So they would use our tools to sort of make themselves compliant and uh, have a program around that. That's a, probably the biggest part of it, but of interest to your listeners, I would say there's also a growing number of threat intelligence groups that do their own kind of original research on behalf of their customers or their kind of internal constituents that involves trying to understand the criminal enterprise or maybe cooperation with law enforcement um, to achieve some sort of disruption, you know, some sort of long-term disruption of a criminal enterprise that's doing that group harm. That's kind of how I got my start with Chainalysis. I was a user at an insurance company that was part of a group doing ransomware research and cooperating with law enforcement to try to do some damage to to ransomware groups. Yeah. I wanted to go back to something you said earlier, where you said you actually have a lot of fun with some of the work that you do. And anytime I hear someone say that, I always want to drill down because I feel like, well, that's going to be the most exciting thing. (laughs) What is fun about what you do? There's a lot of rewards in this job, you know, like just being a part of a company that has this supporting behind the scenes role in, you know, law enforcement actions that take down child exploitation rings and terror financing and other things like that is it's hard to describe how rewarding that is at this point in my career, you know. You know, I I don't want to oversell that, like I'm not directly involved in that and my work may or may not really directly contribute to, to any of that, but I'm just really proud to be a part of the company that does, you know. And um, on the ransomware side, we're definitely involved in supporting research that leads to restitution and disruption of criminal enterprises. And that that's pretty awesome, you know. I'll also say that there's a there's a great kind of puzzle solving aspect of it that I'm in Python every day. I'm learning something about cryptocurrency and crime and malware every single day, uh, trying to understand who is behind this cryptocurrency footprint or what is the cryptocurrency footprint of this important cyber criminal. And that, that involves a lot of problem solving that at the end of it, there's a round of high fives and celebration that, that's really rewarding and fun. What was the last thing you learned that like led to high fives? We worked uh, really supporting Google in their efforts to make a civil lawsuit against the operators of Glooptaba. Glooptaba is a, a botnet of maliciously installed software that has all sorts of other payloads and capabilities. And one of those capabilities was called AWM Proxy. And AWM Proxy was really a criminal service that provided access to residential IPs that the criminals would use for forum spam 
SEO, black hat SEO, and all sorts of other like card fraud and anything where you needed to have an IP address in a very specific part of the world for some reason, right? And the takedown that we worked with uh, Google and their legal counsel on rug pulled that whole AWM proxy enterprise. And we got to see the complaints taking place on crime forums about how awful it was and they couldn't recover and they tried changing domains and people couldn't set up new accounts. And it was just fantastic fun to, to not only having having had a supporting role in that takedown, but seeing the criminals themselves sort of writhe in pain uh, about you know how, how difficult it was for them to, to deal with. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I had one final big question here, which is just kind of simply, what do you think would make the most significant dent in cybercrime moving forward? Yeah, gosh, there are a couple of things, really. W- one is that I I think listening to the last podcast about advisories and how they, they often fall short, I think you could take that a step further and say the advice that's given from industry and governments about how to respond or how to prepare for cybercrime isn't specific enough. When we see you know some sort of tip or PDF or advisory from authorities about ransomware, for example, you get the same kind of advice. It's not bad advice. It's certainly not wrong, but it doesn't prescribe anything that specifically addresses the problems that led to ransomware at that victim, right? Things like Microsoft Office, macro security, and uh, exposing RDP to the internet, you know, um, these aren't often addressed in, in the kind of advice. And so I think getting those things right would be really, really helpful and sort of baking those really specific objectives into regulatory frameworks for compliance would also be really helpful. Second to that, I think, you know, since this is a show about cryptocurrency tracing, I think that people who are in an authority position to investigate problems involving scams or ransomware or you know crimes involving cryptocurrency should have access and training to be able to handle those crimes and uh, that's where I'm really proud to work at uh, a company like Chainalysis that does the training part of this really really well it's brilliant training that I'd spent a lot of time using Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies prior to joining the company but the training that I took when starting was really just kind of mind-blowing and, and really expanded my understanding of of how it all works and how it's possible to trace it. Brian, thank you again for coming on today's show and for explaining all of this. It was great to have you. Yeah, thanks a lot. To our listeners, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we talk about why technology no longer excites us. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at mauerbytes.com slash blog. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from Unminus.com. Today's show was edited by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks.